Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and in today's teaching, R.C. Sproul is going to walk us through the doctrines of grace, and specifically the doctrine of irresistible grace. It's a highly controversial topic, but it is beautifully handled and taught, delivered by R.C. After the teaching, there is going to be the roundtable discussion, just like always. And again, for those of you who don't know, Reformation Roundtable is a group of men who desire to see a Reformed church start in Lewis County. In the Centralia, Chehalis area of Washington State, we long for and desire to see the good news of the gospel proclaimed through the tradition of the Reformed doctrines, the doctrines of grace, the beautiful and encouraging news that God is sovereign over all all the world, and that is good news indeed. So if you would like to join us in our quest to plant a church here in Lewis County, please reach out to me via the SoundCloud link, via the website joestout.org, where this is being hosted. And I hope you enjoy the teaching, and may God bring his glory about in Lewis County because of it. Thanks very much for listening. Enjoy the teaching. As we continue now with our study of what is Reformed theology, we're going to continue with our examination of the acrostic tulip, which we have trampled down this beautiful flower in God's garden by changing total depravity to radical corruption. We turned the T to an R. We turned unconditional election into sovereign election. And then we took limited atonement into definite atonement, and we're going to do it again. <laughs> we're going to change another letter here. This letter I stands for the idea of irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And again, I have a little bit of problem with that designation, not because I don't believe the classical doctrine of irresistible grace, but because it also is misleading to many people when they hear it articulated in these terms. And so we're going to talk about effectual grace. And unfortunately, as you can see, there's very little left of our beautiful flower tulip when I'm done with these modifications. And we're going to have to look for some other acrostic, I guess. But the idea of ir irresistible grace also provokes a lot of controversy and there's much misunderstanding about it. I remember when I was a seminary student, we had a professor who was teaching New Testament, and the man was also the president of this Presbyterian seminary. And in class one day, one of the students raised his hand and said, do you believe in the doctrine of election? And the professor exhibited a little bit of irritation at that question, and he said emphatically that he did not because he did not believe that God dragged people kicking and screaming against their will into the kingdom of God, people who didn't want to be there, and at the same time prevented others from coming who desperately wanted to be in the kingdom. And I was astonished, not only that this was such a serious distortion and caricature of historic Reformed theology, but that it would be uh, uttered by uh, a man who should have known better, a man who had uh, been steeped in the confessional standards of the church, and so on. But I thought, 
if a person of this status in the church and this experience and this education has this misconception about irresistible grace, then how many other people must labor under the same misconception? The idea of irresistible conjures up that one cannot possibly offer any resistance to the grace of God. Now, beloved, the history of the human race is the history of relentless resistance by human beings to the sweetness of the grace of God. And what is meant by irresistible grace is not what the word suggests, that it's incapable of being resisted. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace, and we do resist God's grace. But the idea here is that in spite of our natural resistance to the grace of God, that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to us. That's why I prefer the term effectual grace rather than irresistible grace, because this grace that is irresistible affects what God intends to effect by it. Now what we're really looking at in this controversy is the relationship between grace, God's work, and our response to it. The relationship between faith and regeneration. In fact, if there's any one point that divides Reformed theology from other theologies historically, it is the question of the relationship of these two ideas. In historic Reformation thought, the notion is this, that regeneration precedes faith. Now let me take a moment to explain a subtle nuance of this word. When we use the term precede, we're usually talking about something that comes before something else in time. That is, if something precedes something else in time, we say it has temporal priority. One thing comes and then after or later on the other thing follows from it. But when theologians talk with this language, you know, we always have to make excuses for we theologians that are confusing to people. What is in view here in this formula with respect to what's called the order of salvation is what we call logical priority. Logical priority. In this case, for example, we believe that justification is by faith alone. We don't say that faith is by justification, but rather that justification is by faith. Now, we believe that the moment, the very instant a person has faith, in that very instant God declares them just in Christ. So that there is no time gap between the presence of faith and the presence of justification. In time, they're simultaneous. 
But when we say that justification is by faith and not faith by justification, what do we mean? We mean that justification, the reality of justification, depends upon a prior condition, that is, the presence of something else, for it to be real. And in this case, justification depends upon faith, not faith depending on justification. So when we talk about regeneration preceding faith, what this means is this, that before a person exercises saving faith, before they believe in Christ, before they exercise their wills to embrace Christ, God must do something for them and in them so that faith can be exercised. Now, it's common in our culture and in, in our religious circles to say this, that in order for a person to be regenerated or to be reborn, that all it takes in order to be reborn is to believe. So that if you have faith, then as a result of your faith, you then become a new creature. You now are regenerated. You are now born again. And you are born again precisely because you have exercised faith. Now, we talked earlier about the old Pelagian controversy and that old view of original sin that left the little island of righteousness in fallen man, whereby fallen man is still deemed to have the moral power to incline himself or herself to respond positively to the good, to choose Christ, and so on. That the person is not dead in sin and trespass, that that metaphor of Scripture is hyperbolic, and that really fallen people are only seriously ill. They've been weakened by the fall, but not to such an extent that, that it requires a renovation a divine work of recreation in their souls for them to come to faith. That is, the semi-Pelagian view is that fallen man still has within his heart the ability to exercise faith if God woos him, entices him, or in other ways draws him. John tells us uh, the words of Jesus in the sixth chapter, John's Gospel, where Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. And the way many Christians interpret that text is to say that the drawing has to do with God's external wooing, persuading, enticing, luring, whatever. And that God gives this drawing influence to many, many people some respond positively to this drawing, others say no to the drawing. So God draws everybody, presumably, with an equal persuasive power, and in the final analysis, those who acquiesce to the drawing are saved, and those who do not acquiesce are lost. I once had a debate on this subject at, a, at an Arminian seminary in the Midwest, and had an interesting exchange with the head of the New Testament department there as he cited this verse, and I was quick to say to him, he realized that the same Greek word here that is used by John is used frequently elsewhere in the Scriptures, notably in the book of Acts, 
where Paul and Silas are dragged into prison. And I suggested that the idea there in the book of Acts was not that the jailer went into the jail cell and tried to woo, entice, or persuade Paul and Silas to get in there behind bars. I said, that's not, I said, the word has more force than that. And then I called attention to the lexicographical study of that Greek word in Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, where the preferred rendering of the word draw is the word compel. And that changes everything. If you read the text and, and Jesus is saying, no one can come to me unless the Father compel him. That's much stronger than to use the weaker word draw, which could be left to be interpreted as this wooing type of concept that is a mere external suasion. And at that point in our debate, the professor threw me a curve that I wasn't expecting. He said to me, yes, but do you realize that this same Greek word is used in one of the Greek poets, and he, he cited a citation from Euripides or somebody, I don't remember, where the verb was used for the action of drawing water from a well. And he looked at me in triumph and he said, Dr. Sproul, he said, you don't compel water to come out of a well, do you? And I said, no, sir, you don't. You have me there. And I confess that I was not aware of that reference in, in the Greek language. I said, but how do you get water from a well? You stand up at the top of the well and call down, here, water, water, water. Do you try to woo it, entice it, or lure it? Or do you have to go down there with a bucket and pull it out? I said, I'm perfectly happy with the allusion to getting water out of a well because that's what God does with us. We're buried in the water and we need to be drawn out by somebody else's power, not by our own. And that's what, what the debate here is all about. I said at the beginning that the, all of these controversies really come back and roost on our understanding of the T in TULIP, on our understanding of the doctrine of total depravity, and our doctrine of moral inability. Is our condition of bondage to sin so serious and the fall so severe that we have no more moral desire for God unless God plants that desire in our hearts. Now, Jesus put it this way to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. What we hear our Lord saying in that discussion with Nicodemus, where he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that the flesh profits nothing. That there is a prerequisite, a sine qua non, that has to happen to us as a work of God the Holy Spirit, by which he raises us from the state of spiritual death. As Paul articulates that in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. Let's take a moment to look at that. Where Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, 
in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and then parenthetically, by grace you have been saved and raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And then again in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And again, the immediate antecedent of the that is faith, it is the gift of God. And so what Augustine was saying to Pelagius, what Luther was saying to Erasmus, what Calvin was saying to the world, what Edwards was saying to Chauncey, and what we are saying to our friends today is that faith itself is a gift that is given and it is engendered in us by regeneration. It is not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming against their will to come to Christ. But what the Holy Spirit does do is change the inclination and disposition of our hearts so that when we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. Indeed, we are dragged to Christ we run to Christ and we embrace Him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. And that heart is no longer a heart of stone that is impervious to the commands of God and to the invitations of the gospel. But God melts the hardness of our hearts when He makes us new creatures. But when we're dead, the Holy Spirit resurrects us from spiritual death, so that I come to Christ because I want to come to Christ. But the reason I want to come to Christ is that because God has already done a work of grace in my soul. And without that work, I would never have any desire to come to Christ. That's why we say that regeneration precedes faith. We also believe in Reformation thought, that regeneration is monergistic. Now that word's a $3 word, monergistic. And what it means essentially is this, that in this divine operation called rebirth or regeneration, it is the work of God in the human soul and the work of God alone. Erg is a unit of labor, a unit of work. The word energy comes from that idea. Mono means one. And so monergism means one working. That the work of, of regeneration in my heart is something that God does by His power. Not by 50% His power and 50% my power, or 99% His power and 1% my power but by 100% the work of God. He and He alone 
has the power to change the disposition of the soul and of the human heart to bring us to faith. And when he exercises this grace in the soul, he brings about the effect that he intends to bring about by it. When God creates you in the first place, he brought you into existence. You didn't help him. It was his sovereign work that brought you to life biologically. When he brings you to spiritual life, salvific life, it is his work and his alone that brings you into that state of rebirth and of renewed creation. And hence we call this effectual grace. It's grace that works. It's grace that brings about what God wants it to bring about. Let me read a passage that is found in the historical introductory essay to the Ravel edition of Luther's perhaps most important work, at least a book that Martin Luther thought was his most important work, on the bondage of the will. And this historical introduction was written jointly by two men, one of whom was uh, J.I. Packer. And here's just one paragraph from that introduction that I'd like you to hear. It reads this, Is our salvation holy of God, or does it ultimately depend on something that we do for ourselves? Those who say the latter, as the Arminians later did, thereby deny man's utter helplessness in sin and affirm that a form of semi-Pelagianism is true after all. It is no wonder then, the authors say, that later Reformed theology condemned Arminianism as being in principle a return to Rome because in effect it turned faith into a meritorious work and a betrayal of the Reformation because it denied the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, which was the deepest religious and theological principle of the Reformer's thought. What they're saying here is, uh, in this introduction, is following Luther's work against Erasmus, that the whole controversy over justification was a surface issue that thinly veiled the deeper question that engendered the controversy in the first place. And that question was the question of whether our salvation is solely of God's grace or isn't it? And that's what Luther was jealous to, to talk about in his work on the bondage of the will. If indeed we are dead in sin and trespasses, if indeed our wills are held captive by the loss of our flesh, and that we need to be liberated from our own flesh in order to be saved, then obviously, in the final analysis, Salvation is something that God does in us and for us, not something that we in any way do for ourselves. The questions I had at the beginning when he changed another one of the, the wordings um, in the acrostic, and there's nothing magical about the acrostic other than I wonder if some of that is purely culturally driven because we're individualistic Americans who have no conscience of sin. <laughs> and so the idea that we would 
you know, that we would need to be dragged cr- kicking and screaming into God's presence is like offensive to us. Like, well, if it's the better place to be, why wouldn't I choose that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fine with him changing, changing those things. But I, I remember reading um, something by C.S. Lewis. Um, it had something to do with, you know, he wrote it during World War II. And it was, it was surrounding him talking with um, some of the armed forces at the time. And he was saying how the, uh, these men that he would talk to in the army had no concept of sin whatsoever. They had no concept of their own sinfulness. And whereas in the past, you know, maybe people would be filled with guilt while they were rebelling against God, these were men who weren't filled with any guilt at all. They were perfectly happy to be in, living in rebellion against God with no, with no, you know, contrary, you know, nothing to the contrary in their mind. Um, I just wonder if part of this, you know, part of some of the visceral response people have to these doctrines and the tulip itself is, is just that it's like, it, it doesn't stroke our, you know, it doesn't stroke our, uh, our egos enough. <laughs> like limited atonement, like, well, you know, I've got my own idea of, of what just is, what justice is, and there couldn't be anything limited about that. You know, justice means justice for everybody. And not realizing that God is ultimately just with everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, everybody's entitled to justice except God. Mm. He, he can't have his justice. Right. We, we, it's our version that's going to prevail. You know, how we, how we see it and interpret it as a human being. Yeah. yeah. You right. know, last week we talked a little, just briefly too, about limited atonement. And at the, at the time of the canon, you know, when the canons of door were mm-hmm. formulated, that people understood what limited atonement means. Now yeah. it's kind of, now we see it through a different lens, a more 20th or 21st century sure. lens. And some of those arguments were excellent. If, mm-hmm. if, if people come away with the, with the mindset that God is somehow limited or God is somehow unable because he's got this self-imposed limit that he can't break or something like that, if that's the way people are thinking, then yeah, change the acrostic. There's no problem with that. But, but like this, the irresistible grace, like is there really a problem with us being told that we're going, you know, we don't have a problem with irresistible biological birth, like he said. <laughs> we didn't have a, you know, we, we literally were pulled into the world kicking and screaming. And, and how much more would our spiritual rebirth be akin to the biological birth, but even, even more, we're even more helpless than that. Yeah, yeah we, want our, we want our autonomy, though. Yeah. Um, I think the, just the word, that, that word of irresistible, um, when someone hears that oh something is irresistible, they would naturally just want to challenge that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And say, well, really, am I am I irresistible? You know, to this or yeah. Um, I think it's just in our, our human nature to to mm-hmm. someone do that. I don't know the timing of it. I can see where that word lends itself to negative connotations mm-hmm. in people's minds. Right. Uh, especially today, I guess right. you know, but. Well, in our culture too, like you, you mentioned culturally speaking, as Americans, we tend to disagree with things that sort of step on our free toes. Mm-hmm. Um, as we can see in our current situation in the world right now, there's a lot of um, frustrations because of some of that. But I think with that too, in our personal culture, like <clears throat> I think some people like, well, you can't make me do that. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we get a little 
the hackles flare a little bit <laughs> when we get uh, told we can or can't do something. Right. I think it was the way that Luke just said it there, but I think that hearing that word irresistible, um, it to me it drives home the point or the connotation that the desire for the thing has changed within oneself. Like, oh, this thing is irresistible, you know, whether it be something trivial, like, oh, here's a piece of chocolate cake that's in front of me. Oh, that's so irresistible, I can't stop myself. But where the motivation, why you're making that shift was to go after that chocolate cake, as it were, is because you feel drawn, compelled, like there's a passion behind that. And I think that that is something that when God regenerates, he instills that passion to be like, whoa, I'm going to move toward that thing. And for the person who is drawn by, I dare I say, the temptation to follow Christ, right? Like I'm drawn to do this thing. Um, it's not, it's, it's almost visceral. It's like, I can't stop myself. Why would I want to stop myself? I want to do this thing. Like there's a, there's, there's a changed desire. It's a regeneration of the heart there. And so for the person being pulled by, pulled by Christ, mm. it's not a kicking and screaming. It's like, oh, right. well, then now my soul is satisfied. Right. I now have that satisfaction. You know, on, on that, because I was just, I was thinking the exact same thing. And my mind went to Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And I think that's a verse that is often corrupted by name and claim it you know, prosperity gospel people like, oh, you just ask God for something and he'll give you that new car you wanted. And, you know, maturity would say, no, that means he takes your immature desires and gives you new ones. <laughs> so that, that immature desire that you did have, you no longer have that because he's given you the desires of your heart. He hasn't made all of your desires come true. He's given you new desires because your old desires are corrupt, which is kind of goes along with that idea that where he said that um, the human race, uh, human history is rife with constant resistance to the sweet grace of God. It's not mm -hmm. that his grace is, ir is irresistible. It's very resistible. People resist mm -hmm. it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, that's your default position. That's the default example. Yeah. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, it says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And then in 30, I think it's verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God now... And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And then you go to Jeremiah 31 and see what God does in us. Mm -hmm. I know when I was at the mission, the guy, I, I preach the grace of God as a man all the time. And I remember once uh, we, were in, we were in devotions or something, and one of them goes, you know, Les, you talk about grace a lot, What's, but I don't get why it would be hard. It doesn't seem that like it would be hard. I said, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever received a gift from someone at Christmas that you didn't expect to, and the first thought in your mind was, oh, no, i got to get them something. Going back to what we were talking about, what you gentlemen are talking about, it's in our nature to, to resist that and, and feel like I owe them now versus just receiving the gift and being glad for it and being blessed by it. It's in our nature to resist that. Yeah. Just, just the sheer act of, of, of grace. You know, in, back, in, back in Palestine, they would say, grace to you. That's how they greeted people. May you, Joe, grace to you, Joe. May you have a day you don't deserve. You know, what a, what a, way, mm -hmm. to, what a way to greet someone and say something.
and I think it was just more of a the the aspect of grace was more understood. And now it's boy, now you're you're treading on me now, and now I feel like I owe you, and that's how corrupt our thinking is now versus just being open open minded and open hearted to receive. Psalm 65 says, uh, it says, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your house or in your courts. And the obvious, I mean, the, the sovereign grace of God is obviously true in a verse like that. It's, blessed is the man that you've chosen and caused to approach you. You've compelled him to come to you. Um, but the good life is present there as well. And so we resist, God's grace is resistible, at least from the standpoint of our default position is to resist it. But once God changes those desires of our hearts and he draws us to him or he compels us to himself, mm-hmm. then we get the good life. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the whole argument of like, well, I don't believe in a God that would drag me kicking and screaming into the kingdom. It's like, well, first of all, that's not the argument anybody's making, but even if it was, it's like you're upset that there's a God that will not give you a choice in, in whether or not he's going to bless you abundantly or not. <laughs> you know, it's like this, this God is so full of grace. He's so full of love. He's not even leaving the decision in your hands because he knows where that will lead. He's just making sure he's taking care of you because you're one of his children. Mm-hmm. And it's in the presence of God, is, it's, it's where the, the good life is found. You know, when you sit and meditate or contemplate or think a little bit about being a believer, um, I think, I mean, no, I don't think about this, but if I did think about that, well, actually, I haven't kind of thought about it, <laughs> that I kind of conjured up a little bit of the thought in my heart, like, maybe that's not a bad way to go. I, I think I would be really distorted in my approach to God, whereas when I go, my goodness, I don't know how you chose me, mm-hmm. and I don't know how this mm-hmm. worked, but thank you, mm-hmm. because when I think about all the things I do in life, I'm thinking, oh man, I'm pretty stupid. <laughs> I wouldn't figure this out, but it really does make me more thankful, and I'm just going, there's no way I figured this out. Mm-hmm. Somehow, mm-hmm. you definitely drew, compelled, mm-hmm. um, Whatever. Anyways, it's, yeah. it seems like a very comfortable way to think. Yeah. Well, it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I may be thinking wrong about this. Like when you think of Pascal's wager, you know, you there's no downside. You know, if I just follow Christ because he he's a good teacher, or if I follow him because his his words seem wise to me, if they're if they're true, then I might come out in a good way. And if they're not true, I've just lived a better life because I've subscribed to something that seemed to have some fundamental morality to it. I don't know if I got Pascal's wager correct when in the way I was kind of describing it, but there's no downside. I mean, all you got to do is flip the TV on. I think that they still do it on Sunday morning and, and listen to Joel Osteen tell you, you can have your best life now. Well, if I can, man, I don't know what would compel me or make give me any desire to want to go to heaven then, if I can have my best life now. But even if, you know, I've heard Andy Stanley say, if mm-hmm. if you just follow Christ, and if you just, if you don't believe him, but follow his moral teachings, hey, you're at least going to, you're at least going to have a better attitude 
with your family and things will be better. I mean, people will like you more. You'll be softer. You won't be so this and that. And I'm thinking, my goodness, hmm. you're a pastor. Yeah. This is what you're saying? Yeah. Anyway. You know. Yeah. Well, like a Christless righteousness will send you to hell just as fast as being, mm -hmm. you know, Karl Marx. Exactly. <laughs> you, know, exactly. You, can, you can. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Yeah. Well, I think we can see that in the Word, too. I mean, you said there will be those in that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons mm -hmm. and you know, depart from mm -hmm. me? I think there's a lot of people have a, a false sense of security and a Christless yeah. righteousness. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in the good life, when I was talking about the good life, I mean, I fully believe that the good life is found in Christ because mm -hmm. Christ came that we might have life abundantly. But Joel Olstein and Andy Stanley, how do you answer the idea that Jesus says, to follow him means to give up everything, mm -hmm. to pick up a mm -hmm. cross, like an actual instrument of death, and follow after him. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to be willing to die in order to do that. So I'm, 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 I've heard of that Pascal's wager, is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm not, I'm not super familiar with it. But if, if the argument goes, well, just try Jesus, I, you know, God can fill his house however he wants. And so if that's the way he's, if that's the way he's, you know, drawing you to himself, so be it. That's not going to be the argument I would use, though. Um, and I know you weren't, argue, yeah, you weren't right. arguing for it, but yeah. that wouldn't be the argument I would use because you don't want, I mean, that's, that's, where, the, that's where the seed falling on rocky soil, that, that's what they were told. Mm -hmm. They were told, just try Christ. And then, you know, they sprang up and they had no roots and they just fell away. Now, we would believe that they were never regenerated to begin with because they... Because the, the results of regeneration is bearing fruit. So if you're not bearing fruit, then you were never regenerated in the first place. But to tell people to just try Jesus yeah. might be the way God, you know, you can use some bad theology to bring people into the kingdom, but we shouldn't be propagating it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I've heard many discussions on the sinner's prayer. Mm. You know, how many false conversions are a result of that? And people... People think they got their ticket punched to heaven, and man, it's, it's not good. Um, anyway. the, the pushback that I would have against Pascal's razor is, uh, or uh, Pascal's Occam's, I'm mixing. <laughs> Occam's, I mean, Occam's, Occam's razor. razor. I'll, I'll, I'll Occam's that, razor, uh, I do know that. Pascal's wager would be, uh, Paul talks about it basically in, I think it's in Corinthians where, yeah, so it's Corinthians 1. First Corinthians uh, 15. Yeah, if Christ is not right. If Christ is not right, we're to be pitied mm -hmm. most, mm -hmm. right? It's like, well, sort of like, hey, if you just follow Jesus' moral teachings, yeah, that's actually, from for all intents and purposes, you're limiting yourself. Now, when your heart is regenerated, you've now discovered that, wait a second, actually following Christ mm. is the good eternal life, but you're making a lot of temporal sacrifices in uh, where hedonism sounds a lot more appealing if Jesus isn't true, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, the right. good moral teacher argument to me, I mean, yeah. I mean, Paul even just kind of directly yeah. addresses that I, in, in that verse. I think, I think that's the most... That was exactly the same one I was thinking of when you were talking about that, just thinking about Paul saying, well, if, if Jesus isn't raised, we are the most to be pitied because we're following a false hope. Yeah. You know, we have a hope in yeah. something that's completely anti what everyone else yeah. in the world and the culture tells you, right. even in Paul's day. 
mm-hmm. you know, because they were going after lust and drunkenness and sexual orgies and all that. And yeah. It's like, okay, have mm-hmm. fun, go do it, you know, or are you going to follow Christ mm-hmm. and, and do what he says and, and do all the other things that yeah. he says about denying yourself and bearing the cross and, you know, mm-hmm. loving your enemies yeah. and treating yes. others better than yourself. It's like, well, why would you do that? Why would you punish yourself? Yeah. And Unless Jesus is raised. It, that's, so. And if you're thinking in terms of like, what kind of society do I want to be a part of? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you want to be a part of a Christian society, whether or not everybody's Christian or not, because Christian society is the best society to live in. But we're not talking, we're, I mean, in the instance of talking about the theology of God and how he, mm-hmm. and how he fills, uh, how he seats people at the Supper of the Lamb, we care far more about not people just following his laws. We want him to obey his laws because they love him. Mm-hmm. If you love me, you'll obey me. Um, it, but as far as like, you know, if you want, if you want the good life, yeah, I mean, it's the, all those people that are living in sin and debauchery and hedonism. There is, we all know that there is an emptiness there. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't be temptation if it wasn't tempting. So I mean, we, you know, it's the good life now oftentimes means rejecting what the world says is the good life. Um, one, uh, one thing that popped up when we were listening to, to, to Sproul, he was talking about how um, um, kind of Arminian, the Arminian view juxtaposed to what the Reformed view is on um, God's irresistible grace portion um i guess this question kind of popped up if if somebody was in our our, in an arminian position does god draw all people with uh uh with equal force or equal opportunity because i was thinking about this is like the issue the issue comes up because what luke what you mentioned earlier the autonomy part we want our autonomy. We want to be the one that said, hey, I made the choice for Christ. And then something, I think it was several weeks ago, Joe, that you said, um, was that that a lot of the Armenian position has to do with a perceived fairness. Hmm. Like there's a sort of fairness that, well, everybody's getting, a, getting an equal shot. They're getting dealt an equal hand. And I kind of look at the way that the world works and... The way that people come to find out about Christ and have they all been actually dealt an equal hand so that all might if you have you know that choice and so what happens what happens if somebody uh, hasn't heard hasn't heard the gospel right the sort of that hasn't heard the gospel question or maybe it wasn't explained clearly as clearly maybe one person had an opportunity to hear somebody who just crystal clear articulation of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection is the saving work and atonement mm. versus I think you should probably follow Jesus, you know, like kind of. So anyway, I don't know. That, that question is, kind of popped up in it, my head. Is, like, God ever, is God ever unfair? Ever. Uh, no, he's not. Okay. He's not. But I also believe in a fully sovereign, fully just God. Okay. So, but I'm 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 playing kind of like devil's advocate, if you will, from no, like I the mean, Armenian position, because the Armenian yeah. position is like, well, there's a fairness element to the the issue with fairness comes down to I don't think that election is fair. 
right? That's basically going to be the argument from the Arminian, because if there isn't choice and there isn't an opportunity for a relational mm -hmm. love there, this is the general general mm -hmm. position that's held. God, God basically, the, the idea that I often hear is God opens the door for all people, but not all people walk through. Hmm. And I go, okay, so what if God opened the door a crack versus God opening the door fully? How is that any different than election, right? Because the opportunities are the opportunities are now based outside of His sovereign will, and God's clearly in control in Scripture. So anyway, I don't know. I just kind of no, I, I'm not I, trying to massage that out. No, I hear, I hear what you're saying. You know, I, for me, it kind of harkens back to when we look at when we look at TULIP. It's it, it's not a hierarchy, and it's not really uh, you know it's not. Uh, layers of things it's it's one thing it's all integrated it's all you know it all it, it all it is all interrelated together. exactly you know the the radical the, the corruption or total depravity and, and all of, everything kind of just hinges on its on itself and i think to me that's how i would try to to respond and answer you, what you're saying i understand exactly what you're saying I would think I was just kind of asking in a more rhetorical form, like if an Arminian were sitting here, does God draw people with equal opportunity and equal force? If he doesn't, then, which is pretty clear and evident, when you look out in the world, you see the evidence of it, that's actually, no, that's not the case. Like, he doesn't just impose an equal force, then how can it be a choice? So, but right? if the gospel's offered, and it's offered to everybody, because there was more than just Lydia sitting sitting there listening to Paul at that time in Acts 16. But what did God do? He opened her heart. So, so there's God, you know, back to going back to Deuteronomy um, 29 and 30, uh, Jeremiah 31, and then Jesus and Luke, I think, 22, saying, you know, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant to be shed for all men, so that sins may be forgiven. We see the kind of the consummation of, of what was being spoken of in the Old Testament there. And now, now something, God does something. He circumcises our hearts. So nobody, I don't believe anybody, and I know you guys don't either, has ever gone into the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. Because God changes the desires of our hearts. Mm -hmm. And I think, the, I think the, the offer of the gospel is open to everybody. I think it is, I think it is open to everybody. But unless God does that work in you, you you are just you're going to naturally resist it. You're going to naturally rebuke it. You're going to nat naturally disregard it. I don't, maybe maybe I'm not tracking real well. I, I, Do you, I let's let's uh, let's sit a little bit on that idea of God being fair, uh, because I think He definitely is just, and maybe justice and fairness are similar enough that we don't want to split hairs on it. But if you think about what you've been given in your regeneration, it, it wasn't fair at all. No, no. And so, so it wasn't fair for Jesus, and it's not fair for you. You, you, you received a double portion. You, God had mercy on you and punished Jesus, and, and he could have just left it at that. But instead, he also gave you grace. So he, you didn't get what you did deserve, and you did get what you didn't deserve. So God is not necessarily fair in the sense of like okay everybody gets an equal slice of pizza but he's fair in that we either get what we deserve which is you know uh, his yeah. just his yeah, judgment his or we don't get what we deserve which is his grace <clears throat> um, and so it's it's he's not fair but he's 
but he's not fair in the more generous sense, not in the less generous sense. Mm-hmm. I, I, what do you guys think? Is that, is I that think a, that idea of fairness is a false premise. I think it's, you know, that, that needs to be turned on its head because God is ultimately just and, and we are just and it is fair for us as humans to be sent to hell. And I think that's where that lies, is, is the idea of, oh, well, if God didn't offer me a piece of cake, but he offered you a piece of cake, that's not fair. And it's like, no, that's not exactly, that's not how this works. You right, know? Right. I think the, the argument to the Arminian mm-hmm. there, it, it, that, that thought, that line of thought is, no, um, you know, God is, God is doing a divine work in those whom he chooses. And the rest of us, we are completely fair in that we're, you know, destined to, to perdition. This is uh, from Romans 9, verses 19 through 24. It says, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? Mm-hmm. That's exactly where I was at. You know, Paul responds, and, and he doesn't break into some long philosophical soliloquy here, he just lays it out. God. God is sovereign, and just like God talking to Job, it's like, who yep. are you? Where were you? <laughs> yeah. that, that question, though, of fairness, and like, you know, I've heard people say, "Oh, well, if if grace, if the grace of God is really just a gift, if, if salvation is a gift, how can how can you be forced to accept that gift?" You know, I've heard it, you know, said that way before mm-hmm. too. But Romans nine, to me, was just like that's when I just boom, you know, got the two by four to the head and was like, "Oh, yes." That's why we always skip this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, that's why no one wants to read Romans. I got it now. You know, when when we're talking about this, I might ask someone, I might ask you, the fact that God, that that you're not elect, the fact that you're not elect, that you don't desire God, are you going to lose a lot of sleep over that tonight? The answer is no for the un, for the non-elect. You know they're going to go about their day because now we're just talking. We're just we're just talking intellectually and we're we're talking yeah. philosophically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking because we're at odds or whatever. But when all said and done, you know the 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 unbeliever is going to go about their merry business of whatever it is without without a care or concern whether or not God God has yeah. elected them or not. Build that house on the sand and be happy about it. You know, there's a... And and God does have a big plan that we don't quite all understand. I I was reading, you know, how we were talking about um, uh, Pharaoh and the plagues and their Mm -hmm. kids and stuff. So right now where they're at, they're they're just... um, The Egyptians have caught up with them. And so the angel of the Lord moves the cloud from the front of them where he's leading day and night to the back. And brings complete darkness and now the Egyptians this tremendous force of an army are back there and the Egyptian or the uh, Israelites know this so uh, then he says to um, uh, Moses you know put your staff out there bang no waters open up and I'm going 
So at what point in time did the Egyptians go? So I'm glad Pharaoh's my leader, but you know, am I going to go through this too? Right. All right, I'm going to head out. <laughs> I'm kind of tired. But God specifically says, uh, I'm going to harden the whole army's heart. And the whole world and all of Egypt is going to see how powerful and what a God I am. And so this is, it's kind of like, Mm -hmm. I'm not really answering your question exactly, but he's certainly saying, I'm God and this is the way we're going to do it. And they're going to see my glory. Yeah. And what's Moses say? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Watch this. Yeah, you know, and in that Egypt perished that day. Mm-hmm. That, that the world never, the Egypt that we have now is not the same Egypt that was then because it was utterly destroyed back then. That's that's why you. Know, that's one of the uh, skeptics will look to to this story of the crossing of the Red Sea and, and to all the plagues and whatnot. They'll look to it and they're like, where is this in history? Why wouldn't Why didn't anybody else talk about this? And it's like. Because they were all wiped out. <laughs> <laughs> right. The only, the only, the, you know, God's people, the Israelites, were the only victors in it, and so they wrote the history. That's how it always works. The victor, mm-hmm. always, victor always writes the history. They weren't around because, because God's plan was to harden them and to do give them the very thing they wanted, which was His wrath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go to the garden, Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. It was their choice to be like God. They didn't regret it until later when they discovered the relationship with God was broken. That's man's choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and upon that, they they saw their nakedness mm-hmm. and they hid themselves and all of that. I mean, just the immediate consequence. Yeah. But also, yeah. there's the immediate promise and prophecy that you know he will he will crush his head mm-hmm. i mean you, yep. it's just god's god's so in control yeah i mean he had it he was all over it the whole the whole yeah. time yeah so I, I have a little bit of different question to bring up based off of what rc was saying tonight and he was talking about the i don't know if he had a fancy no he didn't he was talking about regeneration preceding faith mm-hmm. um so you can't have faith until you regenerate. So here's my question, and, and I totally agree with that. I 100% am behind that. Um, he said that there is no gap between when you're regenerate and when you have faith. They happen. They happen simultaneously, but there is a logical priority to the the work of the Spirit first before faith comes. Um, so I, my question that I wrote down when he said that is: Is there a gap between faith and the realization of faith? Is there a gap between faith and the realization of faith? Because we're fallible, because we are um, finite, God is not. So he, he will give faith and give regeneration. As many as were appointed to believe came to know the Lord that day, just like it says in Acts. Um, but for us who are finite, who don't know the whole timeline, like I know I'm a Christian, but do I know the exact moment that I was regenerate? Mm-hmm. Of course I don't. But is there a gap between faith and realization of faith? This is going to be kind of like metaphysical. I don't know how biblical this actually is. So, yeah. But God existing outside of time solves a lot of these problems. Because if you think about time as like this sort of tube of events happening and you're existing within that space, right? 
From the moment of your birth, you were regenerated. Why? Because your experience has already been handled by a predestined God who knows outside of time. Now, you experience it in somewhat like a moment in time, right? Where it happens at this point in my life, I come to the realization that God and that Christ is king and that he is king over my life and that he's been in control this whole thing this whole time. So I think that there is this temporal realization that happens, but the the path has already been established there. It's already contained. And so from the moment of birth, if you're regenerate, you're regenerate. If you're you're regenerated, if you from the moment of birth you're not regenerated, you're not regenerated. Like so, so, so where does faith fit in there? Uh, well, this, in, in, okay, that, in that. So so faith is given. Faith is given by Christ. Faith is a gift from God. Mm-hmm. And this is actually I, I that's funny that you asked that because I I put this down uh, as a in the form of a question: Is your faith your own? And if so, do you trust yourself with your own faith? The answer to me to those questions is my faith is not my own. My faith has been given to me by a gift as a gift from God at the mm-hmm. moment of my realized regeneration. And I do not trust myself with my own faith. <laughs> I want God to be in complete control of my own faith and to have that worked out. So um, I guess that would be another like kind of push against the Arminian, right? Where the, the question, if you ask that, is your faith your own? They would have to answer yes, because for them, faith precedes the regeneration. But as you have to have faith before you can be regenerated, right? Right, which, which, which is not biblical. Uh, I'm not saying it is. No, I, know, <laughs> I, no, I understand. Yeah. Where you, I understand yeah. the context of what yeah. You're so, about. so for me, so for me, how does faith fit into that? Faith fits into it because it's a gift of God. It's a gift from mm-hmm. God given to mm-hmm. me at the moment of regeneration, so that I might believe. Hmm. Yeah. Ron, this is kind of a linear metaphysical. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's all right. It's something will run right by me. <laughs> Time is a two. Okay. Walk <laughs> <laughs> away. Time is a big PVC pipe. <laughs> I've, I've heard it described as like like God is sort of being like a blimp above a parade. Like we exist at one point in the parade. But he sees the entire parade from beginning to end, and and I, I kind of I I that may I get what you were saying with tube too, but it's I a little it, blasphemous. It's a little, little you know, God's a blimp. <laughs> big bubbly blimpy God. Oh, it's it's like those all the analogies trying to explain the Trinity. Yeah, right. Like those are all just a disastrous mess. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the blimp thing though is kind of you're you're treading into now uh, foreknowledge and God. Elects you because he knows you're going to choose him because mm. he can see the whole picture. Right. So, so there's there's the danger I think of kind of going back to that. God knows I'm gonna I'm gonna choose him, so he chooses me. That's, that's why I like the time capsule where God created the capsule, and your experience is happening through that space where He's like, "Hey, this has been done already." Boom, mm-hmm. and yeah. you have that throughout. Spencer, I cut you off though with you were saying about God being about. Oh, I don't even remember where I was going. I was just saying that was an analogy <laughs> yeah, I had heard at some point. Yeah, no, I've, yeah. The, you know, that, no, I understood it that the parade way. part. Yeah. yeah, everybody enjoys the parade. <laughs> well, I've heard Candy. it described as standing next to railroad tracks. The train's going by, and you can catch a car. You know, if you if you move your eyes at the same speed as the train, you can actually discern a car going by. But God's 
way up and he sees the entire mm-hmm. train, train to boost the engine yeah. and everything. Right. Same same thing I think. Same idea, yeah. Well I mean there's a there's a, a little bit of a behind that question, is there a gap between faith and the realization of faith? Is mm-hmm. um, you know, we're evangelicals and I think that's I think that's a really important thing. You know, we're not Catholics, we're not, you know, Eastern Orthodox, we're Protestant evangelicals. And because we hold the new birth very, very dearly, you know, the idea of being born again, being regenerate is, is an extraordinarily important doctrine to us, as I believe it should be, because it's, it was such an important one to Jesus. Um, but, I, but I do wonder if, we'll, if we connect a point in our journey of life, if, uh, and I'm specifically kind of reaching back several weeks, maybe months now, to the idea of children of the covenant, children born into Christian homes. You know, for the, for the, for the people that are outside of the faith, who are given the gospel and repent, for them, it's fairly linear. For the thief on the cross, at one point he was hurling insults at Jesus, at another point, he was, you know, he, had, he, he was regenerate. There was, there was like a clear darkness into light experience. For kids that grow up in the covenant, and there's a lot of them, in fact, that seems to be the primary way God fills the kingdom is through children of believers. How, how do we walk them through that idea of faith and regeneration um, if they don't necessarily have a... You know, like, oh, yeah, exactly. A prior, like, oh, yeah, man, I remember back when I was three years old and I was really naughty, and then I asked Jesus into my heart, and now I'm four, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a new, create, new creation. I'm not trying to, to, to knock down on that or look down on that, but how do, how, do we, how do we think about that? Because that's, like, that's one of the major ways that the gospel goes forth, is through covenant kids following after the faith of their fathers. It's not the only way, and it will never be the only way, but that's, that is a primary way. So, I'm not sure. And it's not a guaranteed way, right? To, that the children will follow the faith of their fathers? No, no, it's not. I mean, it's, it's a funny, it's a, that's an interesting question because we should believe it's guaranteed as parents because God says, I'll be a God to your children to a thousand generations. But that, that belief, that faith should not lead us to apathy. It should, it should embolden our action in giving them Jesus every day. But I think, I think the, the main thing it should do is change your perspective to, into expecting God to keep his promise, expecting him to be a God to your children and to not really giving, to not really giving them a, another option. It's like, this is who your God is. This is who we serve and this needs to be yours and you need to embrace this. And I, and I don't ever want you to know a day that you haven't embraced this. I'm not sure if I'm making sense there with the question, other than I think you could make the case that faith can, certainly for like, um, uh, for John the Baptist, faith preceded realization of faith because he was, he was regenerate in, the mother, in his mother's womb. Um, but, you know, the Spirit actually regenerated him while he was in Elizabeth's womb. When I'm not saying that's the norm, but, but there is a, a sense in which faith oftentimes does not, con- the faith and regeneration that you experience does not connect with your physical experience or your, your mental experiences at the time. I don't know if you guys I think perceived, that. yeah, that perceived faith um, 
from the time that a person maybe perceives that they are, that they have faith. Um, you know, they maybe are immediately regenerated, regenerated when Christ breaks out that, uh, that stony heart part, mm-hmm. but may not realize it for, I don't know, days, weeks, or months, right. or something, until right. they start digging, you know, until that appetite is, you know, somehow created. So I could see that uh, perceived as a way, but mm-hmm. I almost feel like, well, you know, from what from what the Bible tells us, that that happens immediately. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that they do have faith, but they may not understand it or mm-hmm. you know know how to articulate that. Right. This is we've been struggling with this a little bit with uh, my daughter right now. Uh, so she oftentimes right about bedtime usually she starts she'll like want either Sarah or I to hang around and like talk to her, and she is really it really bothers her that. She claims to have faith, but she's like, but, you know, I still sin and I still struggle with certain things. And, you know, and so trying to get her to understand that we still live in a fallen world, that we still we foul things up all the time. Um, you know, and I'm trying to explain to her, well, the fact that you are grieved about your sin, the fact that you're mm-hmm. like paranoid of, you know, what if something happens tonight and I don't wake up? Like the fact that that worries you is 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 a good thing. I mean, that you're, you're, there's a guilt there that, that bothers you. Um, but just, I don't know, just talking and, and talking to her about, you know, that we, we have faith in Christ and that, you know, that, and that trying to explain to her what Christ has done for hmm. us. She and I had a very long conversation about that the other day and getting her to understand the burden of, of the, you know, of our sin and then Christ taking that burden from us. Hmm. And disposing of it. Um, How old's your daughter? She's nine. Oh, nine. Wow. Yeah. And and it's been, honestly, I did not expect having children to have, you end up having some pretty heavy conversations with them sometimes. And I was like, boy, how do I explain this? You know, mm-hmm. because cause right. she's asking heavy, heavy questions. Right. Oh, you got to bring it to her level. But I've got to, yeah, I've got to bring it down mm-hmm. to, and that's, and that to me is terrifying. Well, especially if I can give you a little bit of a tip. So when Joe would pull those kind of stunts like that at night, I'd say, hey, yeah, go to sleep. <laughs> Everybody wants to stay up later. Ask me tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> if you really care, you'll ask me in the morning. That's right. Oh, man. Shut yeah, there. Good night. <laughs> well, I guess you'll just have to ponder that, won't you? Shut the door. You know, I, I used to, I'd have guys come to me and go, you know, Les, I, I love Jesus, but I'm really worried that I'm not saved. I said, well, unsaved people don't worry about being saved, whether or not they're saved or not. I said, that's one thing. I mean, it's very simple. If you're, if you're concerned about it, if it has, has weight on weight with you, then it's, that's, that's a good indication, I think. Hmm. And then, you know, you get into the word more and in, in John 16, Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send the paraclete. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And here's, here's what he's going to do. And he's really, really good at his job in convicting the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, your daughter, she's going through that. We had it for a nine-year-old. He said heavy, but, you know, the Holy Spirit can allow her to handle all that as far yeah, as understanding. It's, encouraging it's really yeah. pretty amazing. That's, yeah. Well, yeah. we've talked about fruit, too. Like, like you, you know, we need to see fruit in our life. We're not seeing fruit in our life. That's concerning. And so we talked about what that looks like, and yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it is. It's a 
I don't know, because, you know, I, I mean, sure, we all still struggle with sin mm-hmm. occasionally, and, you know, and <laughs> she's telling these things, and I'm like, you're not the only one, Addy. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> sure. Just, you know, yeah, so, yeah. and I talked about that. I was like, you know, you remember that time that, you know, I lost my temper? Do you remember when this happened or when Ben did that? Or, yeah. You know, so we all, we all, and I, you know, I referenced Paul in Romans, like, you know, I know the good I ought to do, but I mm-hmm. do not do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if Paul's saying that, and I'm sure Paul yeah. was a far more um, diligent believer than I am mm. at the time. Yeah, he had been a, he had been a, an apostle for about 22 years when that occurred. Yeah. Well, he wasn't a baby Christian. Yeah, yeah. Old, right. Man, yeah. I am and all that. You know, Paul said in Galatians too, the, the flesh lusts after the spirit. And I don't think it's an accident that he said that first before he said, and the spirit lusts after mm. the flesh. I think there's a reason that he said it in that order. I right. This is the way I think. Because Paul's just saying, hey, we are, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be fighting this. We're, we got this nature that clings to us. You know, it's like I, I remember somebody talking about it back in the day when when you had a dog who was killing chickens. They'd take one of the chickens he killed and tie it to his neck so he couldn't get to it, and he dragged this chicken carcass around and it, it reeked in it. It became maggoty and just nasty. But the the dog carried it around, and it's kind of similar to we want to be rid of this. Yeah. We we do. We, we hate our sin. Why, why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do? And why can't I do the things I know I should do? You know? Well, when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he actually was going to use a dead chicken around Christian's neck, but he decided to just make it a, a cleaner bird. And not just <laughs> <laughs> We've actually been reading Pilgrim's Progress, yeah. a, a modernized English version. And, uh, and it actually has been super helpful because there's been times that it, Addie's asked questions that I can tell the story helped her to understand mm. better right. certain aspects of the Christian life. Yeah. Um, which has been good. 